Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. So we are continuing in uh, our study in 1 Corinthians today. So if you would turn to 1 Corinthians and we're going to be in chapter 11. We're going to pick up in the middle of chapter 11 after that riveting uh, passage that we covered last time. Um, We are going to now look at a pretty interesting section of Scripture here. Um, And we're going to begin in verse 17, as I said. And I have cut the passage in half today from what I would normally do because I really wanted to focus in on um, what was going on in Corinth and how that would apply to us as well. And also, we're going to throw some theology in there as well so we can uh, kind of of, uh, refresh ourselves, all right? So if you would stand as we read the Word of God. This is the Word of God. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you and in part... I believe it. For then there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for you in your eating for you <laughs> for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. For do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in in this? I will not praise you. This is the word of God. Father, we come before you today and ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts and minds that we would receive the truth of your word and that we would align our lives accordingly, Lord, to honor you and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to begin with a few very simple questions today that I think we should all ask ourselves um, frequently. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? Do you trust that He is always and eternally good? He's always and eternally good. Do you trust that He is always and eternally just and fair? Do you trust that He is always and eternally right? He is righteous in everything that He does. And it's, if we would agree with those things, then we would um, say that's a good thing, that we're trusting in those attributes of God. But I believe we need to take that even a step further. Do you trust God's Word? Because if you think about it, the only way we know anything about God is what we get in His Word, right? So we can't just pick and choose the parts of the Word that we trust and the parts that we don't. If we trust God and we really believe that God is all-knowing, He's omniscient, and we truly believe that He is all-powerful, we believe then that because of that power and because of that knowledge, He, of course, then has the infinite ability to deliver His perfect Word 
to His church exactly the way that He intended to deliver it. And every jot and every tittle of His Word is inspired. We've been talking about this each week. It's infallible, it is inerrant, and it is sufficient for His church, for life and godliness as we, as we serve Him in this life, as we serve one another, and as we await His return. But just think through this logically then from a standpoint of, of the arguments that we often hear from those who are unbelievers. If man messed up the Bible somewhere along the way, well then God isn't all-knowing because somehow he missed that and he didn't see it coming. All right? And if that's your conclusion, that God is not all-knowing, then that would also mean that God isn't all-powerful either because he couldn't see it coming and therefore he could not keep that from happening if man truly messed it all up. You see, when you diminish even one of his eternal attributes even one iota, you have then departed from the true God of Scripture and you have created a false god, an idol. So true believers seek to understand and never diminish God's eternal attributes, who He really is. A God, this is the thing, He is the source of all knowledge. All knowledge comes from Him. And a God that is the source of all knowledge and thus truly all-knowing, infinite in His knowledge, He can see every act. He can see every thought. He can see every intention of every person's thought or heart. He knows the how, the when, the what, and the why of anything that has ever happened and anything that ever will happen. He's the source of all knowledge. That is why in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, if you're taking notes, jot that down. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, God says that, quote, He declares the end before the beginning. He's already come to the conclusion. He declares the end before the beginning. He will accomplish His purpose according to His plan. An all-knowing God... A God who is the source of all knowledge is a God that can be trusted. It's also why in Romans 8, 28, we have this promise when Paul writes, quote, And we know that for those who love God, all things, not just some things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now it's in alignment again with His purpose. True believers trust that He is always and eternally good. They trust that He is always eternally just and fair. They trust that He is always and eternally right in everything He does. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are one in accomplishing the purpose and the will of the Godhead as time moves forward. So he declared the end from the beginning, and everything that is taking place is according to his purpose and his plan and his divine will. And they are one. The Godhead is one in this, in this singular purpose. 
Everything that has happened and everything that will happen again is all according to the eternal righteous and good plan of God. And we, you and I, are privileged to get to be a part of that. It's not about us. It's all about Him. We get to take part in His plan, His story, okay? However, we have to understand that not everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ truly is a follower of Christ. Scripture is clear that within the walls of any given church building, there are those who are sheep, true followers of Christ, and there are goats, which are false followers of Christ, the pretenders. There is the wheat that will one day be harvested, and then there are the tares that will one day be cut down and cast into the fire, and that's just the reality of the situation. There are those who are truly in Christ Jesus, and there are those who claim to know Him, yet do not truly seek Him, they do not obey Him, they do not truly love Him, they do not make Him the priority of their life. Their love and devotion to God is merely lip service. In reality, they are their own God. They have created, as I said, an idol in their own image. They have crafted a God that they can be good with. All right, And He's not the God of Scripture, and so therefore He is a false God. It often looks a whole lot like the God of Scripture, which sometimes makes it difficult to distinguish at face value which folks are actually serving the God of the Bible and those who aren't. But it only takes a tweak here and there, just alter Him here and change Him a bit there, and pretty soon you've got a variant God. You've got an idol. I have used the example often. You can have an ice-cold Coca-Cola and you put one drop of arsenic in it and it ceases to be a, um, a refreshing beverage. It becomes a deadly poison. Amen? And that's essentially what we're talking about is changing who God is. So again, we have to understand that just because someone walks through the doors of a church, even weekly, right? Remember the Pharisees? how devout they were, how knowledgeable they were, the fact that they were the upper echelon of, of, of spirituality in Christ's day, that didn't make them genuine believers. They rejected Christ. So somebody can walk through the doors of a church building every single week, every single uh, time the doors are open, and that does not make them a genuine believer. And, and here's what we have to understand. This is what we have to trust in. Christ Himself established His church. The Bible says that Christ Himself is building His church. It's on Him. It's not on you and I in being clever or trying to convince people or win people. All we have to do is be faithful to proclaim what the Word of God says. And then Christ will build His church. If you understand Say amen. amen. All right. That's not for my own ego. I want to make sure you're, you're picking up what I'm putting down, okay? We must understand that there is nothing else in all of creation like His church. There's nothing like it. It is not a club. 
It is not a political party. It's not a get-together, a social event. It's not an experience. It's not entertainment. His church transcends anything and everything else in this world. It is truly unique because His church is in Christ and His church is eternal. God's Word tells us in Ephesians 1.4, and I'm going to have you go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles in front of you, it's Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 4 here, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Here we see this theme of declaring the end before the beginning, okay? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. His church, you see, are the benefactors of the relationship within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each in perfect unity, as I said before, in perfect alignment with His eternal and divine plan, but each have distinct roles within the life of the believer. In the book of John, you don't have to turn there. I'd like you to stay where you are in Ephesians for a few more moments. But in John chapter 6, verse 37, these are the words of Jesus. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will never be cast out. So every person within the true body of Christ is a gift from the Father to the Son. Did you catch that? All whom the Father gives me, Jesus said. In fact, in verse 44 of John chapter 6, Jesus says, listen to this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the relationship there? And so he's talking about, again, that final day, that final harvest. And we see this relationship. We are drawn to be in Christ by the Father. We are given to Jesus by the Father. And once we're drawn to Jesus by the Father, Jesus promises that when we seek Him, when we come to Him, He will not turn us away. John 6.39, John chapter 6.39 says, now this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all the Father has given me, I lose nothing, but it will be raised up on the last day. Again, that just a repetition of those same themes. Not one single person that the Father draws will be turned away. Not one single person that is drawn who seeks Christ will be lost and they will remain in Christ until the final day. Now, if you look again in Ephesians chapter 1, only this time look down to verse 11 through 14, verses 11 through 14, and I'm going to read that. In Him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Do you see the theme repeated again there? that He calls according to His purpose and according to the counsel of His will, the one who works all things according to His own purpose and His own will. Verse 12, To the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. 
In Him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, listen, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of of his glory. Again, you see this relationship within the Trinity according to Scripture. By the Father's predetermined will from before the foundation of the world, we are given to Christ as his inheritance, and we are drawn to him by God the Father. And as we are drawn to him, we seek him in response, and not one who seeks him is turned away. Then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit with an unbreakable promise until that last and final day when Christ will raise us up. The Father, because the Father has given us to Christ, and because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, again, not one soul the Father has given the Son will be lost along the way. Not one. Ultimately then, every single step in this whole order of salvation brings God glory. And the final day, when all the promises are fulfilled, and when the harvest is in, right? Every single word that Christ said, every single, every single thing that, that God has promised from Genesis to Revelation will be fulfilled, and God will make good on all those, those promises. The harvest is in. We step into eternity And in that moment, God will get the utmost glory because all things will have been fulfilled for His glory. Now, while all of this may be difficult to fully grasp and while we may grapple with how it all works, it's important for us to try and understand these things because understanding this will also help us grasp what we see in God's Word regarding how the local church is supposed to operate, who we're supposed to be. Our passage today is dealing with many of these themes that I've already mentioned, but it's also dealing with some of the fallout or the consequences of the fact that there are always going to be goats among the sheep. That was the case there in Corinth, and that's the case in every local church. Um, There are going to be wheat among or tares among the wheat and goats among the sheep. And honestly, we could spend several hours today looking at various different scriptures for me to to really prove to you this reality. But I think what we've covered thus far makes the point clearly enough for our purposes today. Um, But this morning, I want this reality to serve as a backdrop for our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 again. If you recall at the start of chapter 11, Paul is praising the Corinthian believers because they had so diligently followed Paul's instruction that he was divinely given by God, by the Holy Spirit, inspired. He compliments them, but here in this passage he turns on a dime, if you will, and his uh, writing becomes now a harsh correction of the believers in in the church at Corinth. He seems filled with righteous indignation 
and rightly so once you realize what's actually been going on in the congregation and what Paul is addressing here. You see, this is obvious in his first statement regarding the new topic that he's about to discuss as he pivots. He makes a point to tell them, do not expect praise from me on this. Look at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, you've done well in this area over here. I commend you for that. But over here in this area, you are dishonoring Christ, and you are dishonoring Christ's church. The gathering is meant for the good of all, but you're messing it up to the degree, to the degree essentially, that it would be better that you not meet together at all if you're going to continue meeting in this particular fashion. Well, why would he say that? Let's continue in verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. So here again, Paul is pointing out this information that has come to his attention, that when the church of Corinth gets together, they argue, they fight, they fuss, and some, it seems, we learned early on in our study of 1 Corinthians that they are aligning with Paul and Apollos and Cephas and some say, I'm of Jesus, right? And so they're not having uh, discussions or reasoning together over theological issues. They're actually aligning themselves with men as if they were celebrity pastors the way that our culture often does today. But it gets... Much worse than that, actually. Uh, those divisions, you know, within the church, they're going to happen. And the reason they're going to happen is that there are always going to be fleshly divisions engaged in by spiritual babies. Remember, Paul makes the point that I wanted to talk to you as grown men, but I can't because you're a bunch of whiny, fat spiritual babies, right? I took a little liberty in my, in, uh, my description there. But you know, babies are going to grow if they're truly in Christ. Fleshly spiritual baby divisions are a matter of really baby sheep just acting young and foolish and, and, and immature. But those things will change as the Holy Spirit engages in their life and they are sanctified in the power of the Spirit. But Paul here is touching on another type of division within the church, the type of division that he says is necessary and that's why he says, in part, I believe it, because he knows it's necessary. Look at verse 19. For there must also be factions among you, the divisions, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now that phrase, there must be, is actually the Greek word day. And that word means a necessity or under compulsion. It must take place. It must happen. When Peter and the other apostles were commanded to stop preaching, they responded with this same word. They said, we must obey God rather than men. I'm under compulsion because of my loyalty to Christ and to God rather than men. And so I must keep preaching. It doesn't matter what you do to me. I will keep preaching no matter the cost. That's the word that's being used here. The word is used often in the New Testament to illuminate 
the divine will of God, as we've already been discussing this morning. And even in matters, and this is the tough part, I apologize for the crackling this morning, it's just maybe it's going to keep some of you guys awake, but um, the important thing and the hard to grasp part is that, is that it alludes to God's divine will even in matters that we would consider to be not good things, okay? For instance, in Matthew 24, if you want to jot that down, you can turn there. If you Actually, I, I don't have the verse. I didn't write down the actual verse. But it's in Matthew 24. Jesus says, you guys know the story, that he must die and he would be raised again. But we know that Peter protested, right? And he said, oh, lo, oh no, Lord. And, and what did Jesus do? Jesus rebuked Peter and actually called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan, right? Peter... Jesus explained Peter was more concerned in that moment with the affairs and the plans of men more so than the affairs and the plans of God. Do you see that? And Christ actually pointed Peter out as saying, when you align with the plans of men instead of the plans of God, you are actually acting as an agent of Satan. Alright? And when Christ was falsely accused and crucified, on its surface... It was a terrible, dreadful day, but in God's divine plan, this was a day that was absolutely necessary for our redemption to be provided. What would we have done? What would we do without that day when Christ was crucified on the cross and His resurrection? What could we do? Nothing. We would be eternally lost. And this is what we call an enigma or a paradox. Um, It's something that must happen that was ordained by God to happen, yet the men who carry it out, who actually engage in this evil behavior, they are held accountable. Though he predetermined it would happen, here's what you have to understand and what most people have an issue with, though God predetermined it would happen, he is not complicit in the evil deed or the wickedness that that takes place. It is man who acts in his depravity and therefore is justly held accountable for what he's done. And I can think of no better example to illustrate this than in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. At this point, Peter, same guy we just talked about who Jesus just called Satan in the other passage, at this point, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and he gets it now. Because listen what he says in this sermon. He says, This man, talking about Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. So according to Scripture, who delivered Christ over to be crucified? It says it right there. God the Father turned him over according to to His predetermined plan and foreknowledge. It must take place. Do you understand? So you see, again, it was foreordained according to God's plan. It isn't something that we would at face value consider to be a good thing because I guarantee you the disciples who had been following Christ day to day for the three and a half years of His ministry, when they saw Christ die and laid in that grave for them, it was very likely a devastating event and one that caused them to question everything. 
We would say it was terrible if we were in that same place. But here's the thing. It was absolutely necessary in order to bring about God's greater eternal good, His eternal plan, and ultimately so that God will get eternal glory. And this is the point that Paul's making in our passage here. It is necessary in the local church that there be divisions between those who act in their flesh, who cause dissension, who gossip, and so on. And it is necessary for the tares among the wheat to be exposed, to bring that contrast, and ultimately to grow those who are truly in Christ. This is kind of hard for us to swallow. But in facing the challenges of those who act in their flesh, those who are truly believers will be sanctified and will exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He says, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In every local church, God raises up and approves of those who are qualified to serve in leadership, those who are in Christ who will selflessly serve one another. These are approved through testing, through adversity and hardship. And as we learned last week, the fiery trials produce patience and the patience produces endurance and the endurance produces maturity, and eventually, when we stand before Christ uh, Himself, we will be perfected. I want to make one thing clear, though. The greater issue here in this text is the purity of the local church and the unity of the local church. And the church is the body of Christ, and the body of Christ follows the head, which is obviously Christ. And... The body should bear the image of the head. And a fleshly faction within the church is unnatural. It's not right when a fleshly faction pops up um, within the church. If you suddenly noticed what looked to be an extra nose growing out of your arm, all right, you would definitely know something was wrong, okay? That's not normal. And you would almost immediately go to a physician to get it fixed and figured out. Amen? I mean, I don't know how many of you want an extra nose on your arm especially. But in the same way, Christ's body can operate in that condition for a time. But when you become aware of fleshly factions within the church, they have to be dealt with. They have to be dealt with. And here Paul is saying these factions are necessary, but they are not to be tolerated. And those who cause the dissension and strife, they will be held accountable. As in the case of Matthew 18, when Jesus said, quote, he's using the same exact word and theme, it is necessary for stumbling blocks to come But woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. It's necessary, but woe to the man. You understand? Same word, same theme. So as factions arise, as divisions occur, they are to be dealt with biblically in the process of biblical church discipline. And leadership should always do so with gentleness 
and always do so in love. If you had something wrong with your body, again, an extra appendage, right? And you were going to get that taken care of. You would want it to be dealt with in such a way that was gentle and loving so that it wouldn't damage or hurt the rest of your body. Same thing in church discipline. It is, is, it is an act of love and you do so with gentleness and kindness. And the hope is that some who were caught up in that faction might repent, right? Because we don't know that just because they're caught up in the middle of a faction of some who may be goats, there could be sheep among those goats, and those sheep could repent then. And you and I don't really have a, 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 a solid way of, of being able to look at someone and say, well, they're actually a sheep and they're actually a goat, and it would be a bad thing for us to, to engage in that sort of behavior. Anyway, that is up to God. That's up to and according to His divine will and His plan. So all we can do is love people regardless and do everything we can possibly do. Take it to the furthest degree and love them no matter what and pray for them and hope that they would come to a repenting knowledge of their sin and that they would change their ways. That's the hope. But if they don't do that, then they must be dealt with and Scripture gives us an example and instruction in how to do that. You go to them once, you go to them twice, you hold them accountable. If they don't repent, you remove them from the fellowship of the local church. You see, leadership... It's our responsibility as leaders to look down the road and see that these divisions, which are first uh, merely disruptive, if they are left unchecked, will become absolutely destructive in the local church. And we can point to examples of churches in the United States that have just imploded because things have gone unchecked. So in verse 20, Paul turns his attention to this specific issue that they're dealing with in the church, and he's not mincing words. They had perverted the Lord's table. They had made a mockery of the observance of communion, and some of them were paying serious consequences because of their sin in regard to this. Verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it's not to eat the Lord's supper. He's not instructing them that, that he's saying, I know your motives. He's in effect saying here, you break bread, you pass the cup, and you're speaking the words of Jesus. You're going through all the right motions, but what you are doing is not the ordinance of communion that the Lord Jesus instituted on the night of Passover. Christ is actually taking no part in your actions. How could Paul be so bold and confident of this? Well, you look at what's actually going on. Let's look at verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So let me explain to you what's going on here in, in this local church. As in any church, there were those within the local body who were wealthier than others, okay? In fact, there were some believers who were very poor and very hungry. They, there were believers in the local church who were in need. The church would meet and they would have what was called a love feast, and it would be very similar to what we would call a potluck, okay? And the purpose of this love feast was 
supposed to be loving on those who are in need, sharing with them out of their abundance, and then the meal would end or culminate in communion together to signify their unity in Christ. Again, communion's for the purpose of, of unity within the local church under the banner of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? We unite under His blood and His body, the, the new covenant. But many of the wealthier people in the Corinthian church were acting in their flesh. They conspired with one another, if you can imagine, to show up early before all of the uh, poorer believers came and they would turn the, the occasion into a, a drunken party and to make it worse, they would eat all of the food before those who were in need actually got there. And they would just say, Oh, we're sorry. All the food's gone. Yeah, sorry about that. So these believers who were supposed to be sharing, taking care of one another in love, they were purposefully dividing the church. Those who were hungry and were looking forward to perhaps the only good meal that they would get all week would have to go without food. And to top it all off, they would end the whole thing with communion again making a mockery of Jesus' sacrifice and having the opposite effect that he instituted communion for. So can you understand why Paul is, is being pointedly, uh, you know, I added that for effect. Why he's being so harsh, why he seems to be livid, righteously so. Verse 22, For do you not have houses in which... To eat and drink. Basically, if you want to indulge yourself, do that at home. If you want to be a selfish slob, do that at home. Indulge yourself in the privacy of your own home. Don't do it in the local church where your purpose is actually in Christ to give of yourself sacrificially, to serve one another, to share with everyone around you. Continuing verse 22. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Because the way they were acting seemed to say that they actually didn't have love for Christ or His church. They loved themselves more. It seemed to say that they despised Christ's church. It seemed to communicate that they did not love their less fortunate brothers and sisters in Christ at all. They were flaunting their wealth in front of them thumbing their nose at these believers who were in desperate need. Worst of all, this local gathering that was first meant to fulfill them spiritually and secondly to fulfill them physically and meet their physical needs was doing neither. Their love feast was loveless and their communion that was meant to unify was actually dividing the body of Christ. So Paul, again, righteously angry, is using a phrase in the same way that we might use something, uh, a phrase when something happens that kind of blows our mind, right? My dad used to say, that beats all I've ever seen. Or, you know, like we would say, uh, some, what are you thinking, right? What are you thinking? I don't even know what to say to you. And that's what Paul is saying here. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And then pointedly, in this, I will not praise you. You will get no pat on the back from me in this regard. 
This is unacceptable. Here's where the rubber meets the road. We can wear the badge of Christianity. We can say all of the right things and even through periods of time do all of the right things on the surface. But eventually what is in the heart of that person will be revealed And it may not be revealed to everyone in the church. Oftentimes it is. But it most definitely will be revealed by Christ. If nothing more than the judgment seat of Christ. Or the white throne judgment. The question is, if you wear this badge, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, do you walk humbly? Do you live sacrificially? Do you truly love and care for others? Each person who claims to be a believer will be tested, as I said, and very likely exposed. For some, I thought about this last week in my study of the church at Smyrna, for some, their test comes in the form of their prosperity. How do they deal with their wealth? How do they use the resources God has blessed them with? And for others, like we studied last week, the believers at Smyrna, their test will come in the form of trial and suffering and persecution. Both are equally valid tests in exposing the heart of someone who says they are a believer. The true nature of of that so-called follower of Christ will be revealed in both of those situations. Our prayer should not be, listen, we have this bad habit of the first, the first sign of any trial that we're going to go through. Oh Lord, please deliver me. We cry out to God, I don't want to go through this. Right? That's our initial reaction. We don't want to have anything to do with any kind of suffering and we never stop to think that maybe there's an eternal purpose in the trial that we're facing. If we think we're supposed to leave, uh, live an easy life, everything's supposed to go our way, right? We want to get out of the storm as quickly as possible. We want to get on the other side as quickly as possible. But folks, if we truly love Jesus, and if we're truly in Christ, and we want to be in Christ, our prayer should be, Lord, I am yours. Test me. Try me, purify me. Remember David's cry, purify my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. We should want to be purified and tested and be made pure in the eyes of Christ. Our prayer should be, I am completely yours, no matter the cost. That prayer is the prayer of someone who understands that only in the testing and trials can a believer, a true believer, be approved by God, the one who matters most. You can fake it and get the approval of men. The question is, will you be approved by God? That's the ultimate desire of the true follower of Christ, that we are approved by Him, that we reflect Christ in everything that we say and everything we do. Your desires would align with His desires, that your will would align with His will, established as we learn before the foundations of the world. He's going somewhere with this whole thing. Do we want to be the ringleader? Do we want to be the star of the show? Are we going to get on board with what He's got planned?
and in the context of the local church, that we would truly benefit from His sacrifice and the freedom that we have in Christ, we would use to love Him and serve Him, that we would never use our freedom in Christ to indulge ourselves or hurt those whom we should be loving. Rather, we would lay our lives down if need be. That this local church, this local church would be unified in Christ and because of that, we would love and serve one another whatever lies ahead. I don't know what lies ahead, do you? Maybe it's years more of prosperity and smooth sailing in the United States of America. Maybe that's what lies ahead, but maybe not. Shouldn't we ask those questions? We can do this together. We can grow together. We can serve the Lord together. We can go through hard times together. We can can grapple with these tough theological issues together. And those who will turn inward toward one another in sacrificial love for one another, willing to lay down their very lives for one another, That is how Christ will purify His local church. That is what the local church is meant to be. That is my desire for this local church. So, what is your desire? Is that something you want to be a part of? We shouldn't be sad, although it's heartbreaking to lose people we love along the way. And it doesn't necessarily mean those folks are... I'm not trying to say that just because someone leaves our church that they don't know Jesus... That's the last thing I'm trying to say, and I don't want that to come across today. That may very well be the case, but the bottom line is, again, as this local body of Christ, we should go to the furthest degree to wrap our arms around them, even those who leave our church, even those who who leave the fellowship, even those who are caught in disgusting worldly sin and need to be um, um, forgiven by the local body and need to be lifted up and set back on the right track? Even those folks, y'all. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what Christ established His church for, is that as we serve Him together sacrificially, we become more and more like Him. We reflect more and more of His nature. And I believe quite possibly that the direction this world is going We're going to need to turn inward toward one another and grow with one another and do whatever it takes for the sake of one another. And then once we get ourselves really settled, focused on the Word of God, on the Gospel, then we can begin to reach out to those outside the church in dire need and share the Gospel with them. Amen? That's the hope and that's the prayer.